You're not really serious if you're, if you're saying we're going toward a fascist theocracy. <laughs> That's right, we are. What would you tell a kid he ought to hope for nowadays, Frank? What I tell kids, and I've been telling kids for quite some time, is first, register to vote, and second, as soon as you're old enough, run for something. If I was president, I think I'd do a fine job. There's no way that anybody in any public office is going to get 100% of the public liking his or her policies. And so you just take that as a given and you can do things. Howdy, folks. This is Scott Parker, and you're listening to episode number 45 of the ZappaCast. And first of all, before I get to our very special guest, I want to welcome the newest member of the ZappaCast team. He's actually our producer, ladies and gentlemen. We're big time, boys and girls. We have a producer now. We feel so special. Ladies and gentlemen, from way out yonder in Oakland, California, Mr. Phil Circus. Hey, Scott and Ed. Hey. It's finally <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> it's taken long enough. After 44 shows. After. <laughs> yes, Phil came on because... Um, it's kind of like building the bionic man, you know, we can make him stronger. So Phil is the uh, surgeon behind the effort to make the Zappacast bionic. So <laughs> You know, we, we, we aim to make a show that would make Frank proud. That is a very good point. To that end, we have our very special guest who um, is uh, yet another repeat offender on the Zappacast, ladies and gentlemen, from way, way upstate New York, way in the woods up there. Our good friend, Mr. Ed Kamara. Glad to be back. Hi, everyone. Yeah, so we're here talking about something that is probably way overdue, but also very timely. We're here to talk today about the politics of Frank Zappa, a huge subject. There's no way we're ever going to be able to cover it in one episode, but we're going to sort of scratch the surface here. I think the way this got started was, we figured we were going to be doing an episode in 2020 anyways. So I thought of, well, let's see how many songs uh, about presidents or involving presidents and in politics that Frank recorded. And we pretty much been able to find at least one song for each president or presidential term. Uh, although, you know, as we'll discuss a little bit later, uh, it's not so easy to find something about Gerald Ford, but uh, for everyone else uh, during uh, Frank's uh, creativity, we were able to find a, a, a number of songs here and there. So hopefully this will air by uh, the national election, if not. Oh, well before, well before. We have Phil on board now. We can make sure of that. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll get it out before then for sure. You know, Phil, I think the audience out there needs to get a sense of your Zappa history and your background, because you actually, like me, you go back to the 80s, if not earlier. Yeah, 1980. I think I saw my first show in 1980. Oh, wow. And yeah, and I'm originally from Hartford. Even though I'm in Oakland right now, I think we probably were at many of the same shows, probably. <laughs> depending how far back you went. Mm -hmm. But we were just talking before uh, we started recording how all of us frequented the legendary uh, Brass City Records in Waterbury, Connecticut. That's right. I was different. I was going to Area Records in Geneva, New York, and then the Annapolis Record Exchange in Annapolis, Maryland. So, uh, yeah, I never had a chance to go to Brass City until uh, I met Scott uh, for the first podcast, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, until we'd already, yeah, Walter was had passed away shortly before Ed came down to the store to do that 
first episode that we did. So, oh, wow. um, but Walter, of course, as I've said many times on the show, he was the guy who introduced me to the work of Frank. He'd been working on me for a year before I finally decided to spend the money to buy not only a, a copy of Freak Out on CD, but also the CD player to play it on because oh, wow. I didn't have one. So, <laughs> Was that his gateway drug for you was Freak Out? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Because he, you know, he certainly knew me well enough to know that if I heard it, I'd be hooked. Because as we've been saying, Zappa is a rabbit hole. And there are no um, knowledgeable Zappa fans that are casual. It Once you're in, uh, you're never coming out. I was looking into the origins of um, Frank's political involvement or political interest. And in the 60s, it is very, very spotty. There's um, an interview that he did with WDET in Detroit in November of 1967. They want to know, Mr. Sheldon, what you think of LBJ. I want to know why that would be a question that somebody would ask you if you were a musician. I have no idea. I don't anybody know what I want to think about a buffoon. I think he'd make a, I think he'd make a great fat cowboy. He should be a, uh, should be sort of like um, and if, if if we were making a low budget western movie, I would cast Lyndon Johnson as a shifty bartender. That's the first concrete evidence we have that you know that Frank had, you know, any real political leanings at all, but. I think it may go back, you know, because there there was the whole thing where Frank was busted in Cucamonga for obscenity, and that would tend to, if he wasn't already doing so, that would move him considerably farther left of the mainstream conservative political establishment. Then, of course, you go through the Los Angeles freak scene in the 60s, and that's very ultra and liberal and all that kind of stuff. Ed, were you, what was the first evidence that you were able to find in compiling your list? Well, I mean, uh, you can find a couple of uh, relevant songs for uh, Lyndon Johnson on Freak Out. That is true. But uh, yeah, as far as any of the Cucamonga era singles and other tracks he was doing at Studio Z, I can't really say that he was doing anything political then. Uh, it's really with you know songs like Hungry Freak's Daddy and Trouble Every Day. On Freak Out, that's, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the political bent was there uh, on that very first album. They won't go for no more. Great Midwestern hardware store. Philosophy that turns away from those who aren't afraid to say what's on their minds. The left behinds of the great society. Well, I guess you could say it wasn't that ambiguous because Hungry Freak's Daddy mocks the Great Society. That's right. Concept that uh, of Johnson's. Can you give our uh, wonderful audience a uh, uh, a kind of rundown of what the Great Society was? Well, I mean that was uh, Johnson's uh, domestic program, mm-hmm. not only for uh, you know rights uh, and civil rights and that sort of thing, voting rights, but also infrastructure as well. So there was a uh, construction uh, and renovation uh, kind of program uh, or component along with the uh, 
political rights that he was uh, enacting and passing through uh, Congress in 64 and 65. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that mockery that Zappa has in the song Hungry Freak's Daddy, uh, Zappa is seeing the supermarkets and suburbia as uh, outgrowths of, of the Great Society plan that Lyndon Johnson was touting, especially when Johnson was uh, was running for president in 1964 and, and, and pushing that on through. I think once Frank was immersed in that freak culture in the 60s, it would have become very apparent to him what the failings of the Great Society would have been. I mean, he, he basically describes the freak contingent or even young people in general as uh, the left behinds of the great society. Yeah, because the freaks were living in, still living in what were, you know, the urban neighborhoods, you know, uh, or choosing to live in there. They might seek out Frank on Laurel, you know, Laurel Canyon or something like that in a few short years. But uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, as far as what I know of the freaks, that they were still uh, spending their days and, and nights, uh, in the urban sections of uh, Los Angeles. That's right. And at the time, around the time of Freakout, they were kind of under attack from um, the police. And, uh, you know, the mayor was not very fond of them. And they were doing everything they could to clamp down on this group of people, which, you know, eventually their numbers grew to the point where there was nothing really that could be done about them anyway. You know, it became a thing and it was just all over the place but and if you listen carefully to frank's uh you know patter on plastic people he documents that crackdown on um on the freaks i hear the sound of marching feet down sunset boulevard to crescent heights and there at pandora's box we are confronted with a vast quantity of plastic people especially when he mentions the club pandora's box that's a particular reference uh, to that crackdown now uh, that occurred between the albums Freak Out and Absolutely Free. Yeah, that's actually a pretty decent description of what was going on there. It got really ugly after Freak Out. <laughs> Can't help thinking about what a similar feeling thing that's happening, you know, with here in Oakland with tear gas in the streets. Yes. Uh, t- today and just how his, that song Troubled Every Day seems to be, you know, very front of mind. I'm not black, but there's a whole lot of times I wish I could say I'm not white. Well, I'll see the fires burning and the local people turning on the merchants and the shops who used to sell their brooms and mops. Sure, very much so. As Gail once put it to me, Frank was very prescient, you know. A rare example of um, a vocal song from Frank that it's just so it's different than it's there's a sincerity in a seriousness that's you know yeah. not with a lot of his other <laughs> vocal material yeah written of course about the Watts riots and um, when I saw what was happening in Minneapolis a few weeks ago uh, that's what I said to my wife I said uh, it's just Watts all over again you know it's crazy how everything has changed and nothing has changed so <laughs> we we have internet now versus we do <laughs> we have cell phones <laughs> yeah oh i didn't want to forget to mention that in 1963 frank did cut that 
record, The Big Surfer, which uses um, a JFK sound like. Uh, no, don't stop the music. Let's uh, bring them up here and uh, give them a big hand. Hi, <laughs> 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 a big surfer. Hi, big surfer. Hi, you kids. Hiya, hiya, hiya. Gosh, this is really exciting. Oh, yes, what yes. do we win? Well, as the winners of our dance contest, you will receive an all-expense-paid oh, trip. Really? Uh, yes, an all-expense-paid trip is the first members of the Peace Corps to be sent to uh, Alabama. It's a parody, but, I mean, it's kind of hard to figure out if he was pro or anti-JFK. Uh, I guess most people would have been pro-JFK at that time. He was certainly a hero of the young, so and Frank was quite young at the time. I, I kind of you know, I'm glad you uh, reminded me of the big surfer. I kind of forgotten about it, but when I've heard it, you know, uh, here and there on off a file or something like that, that uh, I kind of thought of it more in the uh, same manner as Von Meter's uh, LPs, The First Family. Yeah, you know that were such big sellers at that time. You know, and I figured, well, maybe Frank is doing his little you know, a, a miniature copycat version of of that, you know, cashing in on that uh, craze. Because the first family was a big, big seller for uh, for Von Meter uh, in the early 60s. I mean, I've, I've seen it. Yeah, I didn't know if it was a, a particularly big album or what. Oh, it, it sold in the millions. In fact, Von Meter was such, uh, became such a big name for it that, uh, if I remember correctly, that the night that, uh, uh, or shortly after uh, Kennedy was assassinated, one of the first uh, gigs that Lenny Bruce did, he came on stage and the audience is still feeling the effects of that day or the previous few days. And the first thing he blurts out is what is Von Meter going to do now? <laughs> because, you know, he was saying, you know, Von Meter's whole career or at least uh, popularity is based on the Kennedys. Sure. So, which goes to show just how, how, and I always see copies of the first family. And actually there was a follow-up uh, called the first family rides again. So it was uh, it was a big seller. And I think, I, I sometimes think uh, with Frank coming up with his uh, JFK single is kind of following that trend. You know, obviously from a, a uniquely Zappa perspective, because I, I do think he actually did write that, you know, unlike a, a, most of the Cucamonga stuff, he actually did write that one. But, you know, in, in doing the research, it's what I was saying about the WDET broadcast before. I don't know that Frank really talked a lot about politics prior to that and then in the late 60s he gets very quiet except when he's asked about revolution because that's the thing that the more radical among the audience is expecting to happen at some point you know it's time for a revolution but probably not in the terms that people imagine it the word seems to conjure up images of sort of a modern day version of peasants going into the street with their pitchforks to go after the bad guy who lives in a big house someplace on a hill and we're going to get that son of a bitch and we'll take all the stuff away from him and we'll give it to the workers you know and that's not the kind of revolution i had in mind which one had you in mind well i thought that it might be nice if uh if it was handled in a little bit more modern efficient way you know without people getting slaughtered in the street it's a matter of infiltration. Frank is believing that there's going to be a, a youth revolution. But he was always a guy who was talking about infiltration as opposed to 
violent revolution. And he was unique in that way because there weren't too many people at the time who were saying, you know, what you've got to do is you've got to go among these white collar people, you know, who are running your lives, that kind of thing. And you've got to inject yourself and your beliefs and your values into that system. Frank was kind of unique in that way. It's a it's an interesting approach because um, the Jefferson airplane were ready to burn it all down, for example. <laughs> but Frank took a more, you know, a more assimilationist of yeah, yeah, sure. So Frank doesn't really talk much about in the '60s, right? Ed, he doesn't really talk much about Richard Nixon. No, yeah, especially during the first term from from '69. Uh, on up through the election in 72, there there really isn't anything. Uh, yeah, it's really only with after the re-election and the emerging Watergate scandal, then he kind of draws up some material for the live shows, like Dickie's such an asshole. But even so, that material he uh, didn't release for a very long time. You know, like Dickie's such an asshole, he did that during the Roxy uh, run in uh, 70... 73. 73. Yeah, late 73. Well, if you just might break some yeah so uh but even so uh yeah, we really don't know that song uh until he revamped it uh you know for the uh that's right. album Broadway the Hard Way. And your fingerprints too. The then they got a guy in Virginia. The Whipping up a little soup just for you. Gonna get you But otherwise, as far as any pointed songs about Nixon, yeah, he doesn't really uh, draw up any new material. Uh, that one song that I always liked, uh, Agency Man, mm-hmm. that's kind of more about the process, you know, the selling of the president yes. as opposed to electing one in, in 1968. But that's not really directly relevant to Nixon, but more to the campaigns, how the campaigns were advertised in, in those days. That's right. I mean, he did have on the back of the June, the, the Fillmore East June 71 album, he did have the don't forget to register to vote because that's when, you know, when we were talking before about the way he saw the revolution, um, he saw a youth revolution, but it became the path became clear to him, I think, once youth got the vote. Yeah. And uh, as you and I talked before, Scott, that was uh, the 1972 presidential election was the first that 18 year olds could vote mm-hmm. up, up through then. You had to be 21, I think, or I think it was 21. But 18, yeah, 18 year olds could not vote in the uh, 1968 election. They had to, uh, you know, only in 1972 could they vote then. So, uh, yeah, all of a sudden that uh, 1972 election was the first that you know all college age men and women could uh, could vote in. Yeah, and I don't believe that at the time Frank came out strongly for or against. Uh, a candidate. I mean, it, I think that it was implied, of course, and we learned later that he was not a Nixon fan, that's for sure. But it's interesting because 
people did, even in the late 60s, people did look at Frank as a political figure or a political, well, somebody whose who's political opinion mattered, I guess is the way I want to put that. He did have some uh, concerns about a, uh, if not a totalitarian state, then at least uh, concerns about an overreaching uh, state, whether at the state level or federal level. Uh, I mean, I think as a portent of Ronald Reagan, we have to take into account a song like Concentration Moon on Royal in It for the Money where you have, you know, the idea of what were the uh, institutional camps for Asians during World War II, the possibility and discussion of reviving them to uh, lock up the freaks and hippies. Mm -hmm. That was what Reagan was talking about in in those days. Uh, And, of course, uh, Frank likens that to uh, the kind of either uh, institutional state or penal colony in the uh, Franz Kafka sense. And, and Frank refers to this uh, obliquely with the title Chrome-Plated Megaphone of uh, Destiny and the scenario that he gives in the notes for rolling it for the money. While he may not have, uh, after Lyndon Johnson, uh, he might not have felt strongly about any one politician, he certainly felt very strongly against a particular kind of government that he felt could easily take over the state of California, if not the country. American way, threatened by us, drag a few creeps away in a bus. American way, prisoner lock, smash every creep in the face with a rock. Don't cry, gotta go bye-bye, suddenly die-die. Cop, kill a creep, pow, pow, pow. Sure, and that that alone, that approach to the uh, to the hippie movement, would have soured him against Reagan, as we we find out later. You know, he he comes out pretty hard against Reagan fairly quickly. <laughs> you know, maybe it was that approach that Reagan proposed taking, where you know you might want to lock these kids up and make them think about what they've done. Yeah, because you know when it comes to uh, Gerald Ford, there isn't really anything. I mean. Well, Quinn could say, was there anything for Gerald Ford in general anyways? uh, (laughs) Well, one of the Manson family girls tried to kill him. I mean, you know, there's a... That's right, Squeaky Fromm. Yeah, the woman in the red dress. Yes, there's a sort of vague Zappa connection there, isn't it? There might be, but I think what really threw... What I remember from that, and I was you know, 9, 10 years old at the time, was all this hype about the Bicentennial. Yeah. And you could buy all kinds of stuff for the bicentennial from mugs to floor mats, you know, uh, you know, for it. And uh, by the time the actual bicentennial came on July 4th, 1976, I was kind of sick of all the bicentennial stuff. (laughs) There's a song that uh, he does on Bongo Fury, uh, Poofter's Froth, uh, where he mocks the bicentennial hype. Poofter's Froth, Wyoming, March 11, 67. And, you know, in fact, he even pronounces it as, you know, uh, by, you know, cent as in, you know, the penny, any, all, you know. And uh, (laughs) so uh, he kind of mocks that whole uh, form of, uh, I don't want to say, patriotism but rather jingoism Mm -hmm. but that's more of a contextual song uh when it comes to uh 
Gerald Ford. Otherwise, if you want something more pointed, you watch uh, the first couple seasons of Saturday Night Live, you know, with uh, Chevy Chase as Gerald Ford. Sure. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, and I remember, I mean, Ford came in uh, in 74, and uh, yeah, he had, what, two years, two and a half years, but a lot of the the last full year was taken up with the, his unsuccessful uh, campaign to have an elected term in his own right with Bob Dole as his running mate. I, we kind of forget that Bob Dole was uh, a vice presidential candidate for with Ford uh, back then, mm-hmm. but then uh, elected instead was uh, Jimmy Carter. And uh, that's when you start getting more of these songs regarding the uh, influence of religion on uh, politics and vice versa, mm-hmm. especially songs like Heavenly Bank Account, yep. you know, on You Are What You Is. When some man comes along and claims a godly need, he'll clean you out right through your tweet. That's right, you asked for it. Remember, there's a big difference between kneeling down and bending over. And, of course, the context of Joe's Garage was... Uh, the situation in Iran and especially the uh, attitude or uh, actions taken by Iranian government and the Islam religion in Iran on artists uh, there. And so that kind of sets up the scenario for Joe's Garage. What if you were to have that take place in the United States? Uh, So uh, got that kind of impact of the times. But if there's any one one song that you can say is Carter-specific, it's uh, his song, uh, I Don't Want to Get Drafted. Yes. Hello, anybody home? Special delivery. Out now. Registered mail, you're going to have to sign for this book. Out now. Come on, I know you're in there. Out now. I don't want to get drafted. I don't want to go. I don't want to get drafted. I don't want to get which was a single, and then also appears as drafted again on You, you Are What You Is. And I had to look this up. Jimmy Carter uh, enacted the uh, selective service system you know, to register to be uh, for the draft, and the date for that is July 2nd, 1980. The earliest I Don't Want to Get Drafted is um, from a rehearsal tape from uh, February 10th of 1980. So it must have been discussed you know, in the media yeah. at that point. It was probably discussed first as a bill, you know, and then passed through, you know, the branches of government. Yeah. You know, Frank is pretty tied to that. So he played it a lot during 1980 and then it kind of drifted away. But I always um, wondered, you know, because uh, yeah, I guess that must be it. Yeah. The fact that selective service was being implemented around that time I but guess. But they they didn't reinstate the draft so maybe maybe it did something. Yeah. <laughs> it might have it certainly, you know, must have sold something cuz it's the by far the easiest to find Frank Zappa single I find. So yeah. <laughs> so true. <laughs> On the other hand, what copies I've seen have been unopened, so I don't know how well that sold. <laughs> yeah, well that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> I have a question for Ed and Scott. (laughs) Do you know the first time someone uttered the phrase Zapper for president? Ooh, 
Um, <laughs> that is a, you know, I don't know. I actually have no clue. Do you have any idea? Ed? I don't either because, well, obviously you'd have to, well, because when you look at what he was releasing in 72, he was still with the so-called vaudeville band. So, you know, with Flo and Eddie. So I don't know if that would have been bandied about 76. Uh, yeah, I, whether he was doing anything, you know, someone was saying that uh, Zappa for president, say 84 or uh, 80. I, I don't know. I think I've seen interviews and maybe it's mm -hmm. my imagination, but I think I've seen interviews in the of, uh, 1970s interviews where uh, interviewers asking him that. Like yeah. someone had, and he makes a comment like someone printed up some postcards. Yeah, that could be. I, I seem to recall that there might have been a card going around around the time of Baby Snakes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always associate, you know, Zappa for president with an uh, 88 because, uh, yeah. Uh, and then that was bandied about a little just before his announcement of, uh, of his diagnosis of cancer. But I remember there was a Life magazine story featuring Frank and the family, mm -hmm. and he was talking about running for president then. But uh, as far as anything before uh, 88, I really don't know. Something that was uh, said even jokingly uh, in the 70s would be pretty remarkable. Hey, ZappaCast listeners. This is Phil, and I have found something remarkable. It is a bit of an interview from Frank from a 1970 Dutch television show. You ran for president. I thought about it a number of times before, and then the thing that always holds me back is that what would it feel like to actually be the president, you know, and have to stay in Washington, D.C., in that house for four years? That'd be pretty grim. I saw already some stickers, Frank Zappa for president. I haven't seen any stickers. I've seen some little cards that somebody printed up. I didn't have anything to do with them. But it's true. I had thought about it. I've thought about politics a number of times. But you can't do it all just from the presidency. The president doesn't have the absolute control in the United States because you have to. the power is divided up between him and the, the Senate and the Congress and the rest of that crap. And if you go in there and you can't work in conjunction with the people who are in the Senate and the Congress, you can't get anything done. Um, there, there's a lot of sociological stuff on um, You Are What You Is. Um, maybe that's the last time that he took aim so squarely at, at society. But, you know, because after that, his work becomes increasingly political. And um, yeah. a lot of the themes, um, sexuality, even religion, things like that, that he had dealt with in the past you see less of that and more of a uh, political bat yeah and it's much more pointed and uh, there were some older friends and and even a, uh, one of my supervisors at work who you know, were listening to zappa in the late 60s and 70s and then they got turned off by the increasing pointed uh topical songs on on religion and politics uh, that even when they agreed with frank they uh, they still found it you know his heavy handedness kind of uh, kind of a turnoff. Although, you know, he could get preachy on those mothers of invention uh, performances in the '60s, but at least that was across society in general. Here, it's much more pointed to individual groups or even people at that. Yeah, you know, uh, he kind of divides. You know, stupidity is always a, a factor, right? That's that's really the dividing line. How 
the relative stupidity of people and specifically Americans. So <laughs> by the time you get to 1984, he has a word for that kind of stupidity, which is Republican. So <laughs> and you start seeing a lot more of that kind of separation. So Hot Play Heaven at the Green Hotel is an excellent example of that. I mean, it's very in your face. There's no question what he's talking about. I used to have a job and I was doing fairly well. Depression came along and everybody's out to get. Heard the golden good old days and all the crap we used to sell. Oh, I'm in hot blade heaven at the Green Hotel. And that anti-Republican bent goes up through. Not that he's that fond of Democrats either. It's worth mentioning. No. He's not particularly fond no. of them either, but I guess because Reagan was the president, you see those kind of, um, you know, America turning toward having a more conservative bent as a whole in the 80s. Well, I get wondering about, uh, especially with the, uh, you know, Frank's uh, involvement with the, uh, and addressing to the uh, Parents Music Resource Center, you know, the Tipper Gore group. Her husband, Al Gore, was, you know, Democrat. But even so, uh, these are under the guise of watchfulness of material for, and, and its uh, exposure to children that they came off seeming more conservative or as conservative as, as they were. You know, even the Democrats, uh, you know, who's to say? But Frank took a, a prominent role uh, and uh, in the events leading up to the hearing and at the hearing as well. And then, of course, he uh, generated several uh, recordings uh, from – the tapes of the hearing, mm -hmm. including what I think one of his best uh, collages, Porn Wars. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, you, but when you stop and realize that, yeah, even uh, the leader of that group, uh, Tipper Gore, was the wife of a Democrat, you realize that in some ways uh, that the political establishment was conservative across the board, or you could argue it as such. Frank's one of Frank's, obviously, as everybody knows, one of his biggest triggers would have been censorship in any form. You know, his his whole thing was about taking the blinders off and just letting everybody have access to whatever information they want to have access to or entertainment. So to that extent, it was almost above politics the pmrc thing yeah because obviously of course tipper was a registered and i'm sure still is a registered democrat and was married to a very prominent democrat who in frank's lifetime became vice president and you know in that sense it didn't really matter i don't know if frank ever really made the distinction because when he would go on shows like Crossfire and on CNN and to debate Reverend Jeff Lang and all these people about about the record rating system, the people he was debating in general were hardcore Republicans who saw this as filth. It was kind of unusual for Democrats at the time to take such a stance. But, you know, Frank didn't have any problems pounding her into the dust. <laughs> Tipper and her ilk. <laughs> this is ABC News Nightline. Um, the PTA 
conducted hearings in 1978 in which they detailed cases of more aggressive behavior among children that they felt uh, the children were imitating violence that they saw on television. The American Psychological Association had a report out uh, last September in which they say that viewing violence on television is directly linked to more aggressive behavior among children. So there really are a lot of studies that talk about the effects of viewing violence. All right, Frank Zappa, a long list of studies, but uh, Tipper used an but interesting no conclusion. Words. She said desensitizes. When you see a young girl, as you saw a moment ago, uh, who was standing, I guess, in a video rental store saying, uh, I like the blood, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think that the issue here may be desensitization rather than the content, because I think that there are a lot of things that people can see on television or in the movies that desensitize you. But the most desensitizing thing in the United States today is the Iran-Contra hearings because that is desensitizing us to honesty, to the Constitution itself. That is an issue. This is nothing. Interestingly enough, though, they were on somewhat good terms when Frank passed away because uh, her and Al Gore sent Frank a card when he was um, when they heard he was sick. So, so it wasn't as personal as it would have been, say, for for the Republicans that he was throwing in the fire. I should add also that what I think Frank suspected what was behind at least the public events of, of the parents group was a proposal for a uh, tax on uh, cassette tape Yes, to be uh, gathered by the recording industry. And he says as much in his writings that he wondered if these hearings wasn't really a kind of smokescreen or something to distract the public from learning that there was going to be a tax on, on cassette tape because in those days, people were recording on cassette tape, home recording, like people today download uh, YouTube videos. That's true. You know, that's what was, ki- right? Home taping is killing music, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we all have, among the three of us, uh, various uh, LPs and uh, pre-recorded cassettes and even some early CDs that say, yeah, home taping is killing music. Yep. Yeah. That was the double whammy that drove him to you know, attend those hearings and be on the shows. The fact that, like, he called himself a practical conservative. He did. And we know um, he was a capitalist. But, like, if you start messing with his business uh, with thinly veiled censorship, that's, like, I could see how that's quite upsetting. Sure, bull to (laughs) a red flag in this case. Right. (laughs) You know, they they kind Mm -hmm. of walked in, you know, he was the buzzsaw, you know, that came in to sort of eviscerate that. Yeah. I have to say, though, that uh, I think Scott has heard me say this before, that on that day of the hearings, the one who I think in my estimation stopped the parents group cold was John Denver when he said, when you uh, forbid uh, something from – from someone, it's going to make it all the more attractive. And uh, he kind of stopped them cold in what they were trying to do that day. It's the absolute truth. See, because I don't think they expected anything else out of Frank. And they didn't expect anything else out of D. Snyder. But you get John Denver up there and, you know, these people who, you know, always keep their top button buttoned, they're going to listen probably. And um, they have John Denver records. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. quite sure they got Rocky Mountain High. So, yeah. <laughs> but they, you know, it transcended politics. But at the same time, you know, Frank became more entrenched in his, um, you know, political beliefs as a result of that. I don't think there's any question that it was 
those hearings were accelerant for him. And so when he gets onto the stage in 1988, there's a lot of political content. Also, you know, he's also watching a lot of CNN at the time. He's watching a lot of cable news. And uh, that that would certainly have uh, pushed him forward, you know, to the point where most of the new songs in 1988 have some kind of political content. Because, you know, one of the reasons he said he toured in 1988 in the first place was to perform these songs. Yeah. Probably because it was an election year, you know, mm-hmm. and he saw mm-hmm. an opportunity yeah. to get rid of that Reagan ideology. Yeah, and as you remember, Scott, and you too, Phil, uh, where he had uh, voter registration uh, sure. you know, in the lobbies. I think he was um, one of the pioneers in terms of music. I mean, other artists did it. I think Sting did it at some of his shows that summer. And um, there were a couple other people that were doing it, but Frank really pioneered that approach of getting the League of Women Voters in each city that he was doing it out to register people Except in what was the Towson, Maryland? Yeah, I believe he was prevented. the The League of Women Voters wouldn't send anybody out in that town, probably because you know they knew what his political leanings were. But um, voter suppression is real. <laughs> yeah, very now. much so. Yeah. <laughs> then and now. Yeah, Towson's on the a suburb of uh, Baltimore. Yeah, you, you you have a number of groups uh, like that. You know that mm. that would be capable of of uh, preventing that sort of thing. Yeah, that was pretty much all I believe Republicans that were responsible for that. So yeah. so the so the big thing in on the 88 tour is the aforementioned Republican retrospective medley which is um Dickie's such an asshole which we talked about. And uh that goes into When the Lies So Big which is um another song that would be perfect for now. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. They got lies so big. They don't make a noise. They tell them so well, like a secret disease. It's amazing how well that song is held up, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> amazing and sad. Amazing and sad. Uh, very much so. It's just, it's incredible that people are so willing. I mean, because given the fact that we have social media and given the fact, now I know everybody has their camps and their news sources and they can pick and choose what they want to believe, but it's, it just strikes me as incredible given how far we are supposed to have come as a society in 2020, how identical to, I mean, whatever Frank imagined was going on and what was actually happening in 1988 it is even more so now which begs the question what would frank have made of the current republican administration but we'll get to that (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's just it's an incredible condemnation of the republican party in general and the way that the people who support them are are perfectly happy to be lied to even if they realize they're being lied to, they they're perfectly happy to receive those lies, live by them. So, and then you have after that, a couple of songs that are not aggressively political in that way. One is planet of the baritone women. 
Oh, I I kind of forgot about that one. Yeah, that that's part of the medley. That was more about you know women in um in business who uh, apparently enjoy emasculating their uh, their uh, male subordinates. <laughs> the typical Frank uh, okay. theme from the time. I don't know if it would play so well now, you know, in terms of subject. I, I don't think so. No. <laughs> <laughs> You could imagine, you know, how, how well that'd be received now. Yeah. Any kind of pain, same kind of deal. I mean, you're talking again about advertising and uh, the role women play in, in advertising. You are the girl somebody invented in the grim little office on Madison Ave. They were specific. They made you terrific. Red lips. Blue eyes, blonde hair, on Which, again, has not changed. I mean, it's kind of infiltrated everything. In order to get anywhere, no matter what you're doing, you have to look good delivering that message. It's even true of music, you know. Music was better when ugly people made it, right? So <laughs> can't be ugly and make music anymore. It's a it's a law now. Well, you've, you're probably on the verge of uh, mentioning this, but one song that left out at me: you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Is promiscuous, which he, yes, you know, uh, Zappa's singing about uh, Surgeon General Everett Koop, mm-hmm. and lately I've been seeing on TV the Surgeon General Jerome Adams. And I think he's the first Surgeon General I've seen since Coop. And uh, they kind of remind me, and both of them wear the uniforms with the gingerbread insignia on them and everything. And I'm going, I'm scratching my head. You know, now, Everett Coop really said some crazy things regarding the origins of AIDS. Yes. You know, but uh, so I think with uh, Jerome Adams and the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic, I think is much more credible than Coop ever was. But even so, just the public appearance and presentation of the Surgeon General. Before Coop, to me, the Surgeon General was someone who warned you of, about the effects of cigarette smoking mm-hmm. uh, on pregnant women, you know, and, and your lungs, you know, and as given on the side of every cigarette pack, yeah. you know, and uh, as I was kind of reviewing uh, Frank's songs, uh, Promiscuous kind of brought to mind uh, Surgeon General's uh, present as well as past. I think one of the reasons why you're seeing so much of Jerome Adams is because he's one of the very few African-Americans associated with the Trump administration. So they just Mm -hmm. roll him out more often, even to talk about things that you would not think a Surgeon General would be required to talk about. But Everett Koop was rolled out, you know, to to even talking about things that you wonder, should a Surgeon General even be talking about this? Yeah, moral stuff, moral stuff. Well, another trigger for Frank, right? So Frank would certainly have reacted to that. And here comes Coop in his admiral's uniform. And the Surgeon General, Dr. Coop, is supposed to give you all the poop. But when he's with PMRC, the poop he's scooping amazes me. C-SPAN showed him all dressed up in his phony Dr. God. Get up. He looked in the camera and fixed his spec. He gave a fascinating lecture about anal sex. Frank had said many times in interviews in 1988 that he thought that Mario Cuomo should run for president. Said, yep. and, and He actually said it in some of the early shows on the tour. He actively wanted Mario Cuomo to run I, because Frank was a, a, a practical conservative. Certainly, 
in terms of ec- his economics were, you know, just standard capitalist. It socially was so much of a liberal, you know, I'm very much a liberal, I should say, even speaking out at anti-abortion rallies and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's how I always thought of him. I'm wondering if like a lot of people today see there's like this kind of farce aspect to Democrat and Democrats and Republicans that there's not much difference between them because it's it's a political show. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I always thought of Frank's politics as being very left, except, you know, question, questionable ideas about uh, women's lib. And stuff yeah. Like that. <laughs> uh, um, very. <laughs> I remember him wishing Cuomo would run and he probably just found someone that sounded the first person in a long time to sound like they weren't talking BS. So of course, you know, having not gotten what he would have preferred to have out of, um, you know, his work trying to get people to vote or or register and then hopefully vote in 1988, um, Frank started to turn his attention increasingly toward himself running for president. And, he was as late as 1991 exploring, you know, and he'd been diagnosed, I believe, in March of 1990 with um, prostate cancer and operable prostate cancer. So he apparently, I mean, interviews suggest that he was not all that enamored of Bill Clinton. Right. I don't think he disliked him in the way that he disliked, say, Bush. But, uh, <laughs> right. but, um, you know, and it's interesting because you you see on um, uh, Jesus thinks you're a jerk, which uh, closed right. out the Republican retrospective medley, and that ties all of this stuff in. It specifically deals with Pat Robertson's campaign for president, right? Which must have seemed like the swinging living end of what <laughs> of where <laughs> Republican politics could go at the time for Frank. The- About three foot nine, face puffed up from crying and lying. Cause your sweet little hubby sucking prong part time in the name of the Lord. I, I think that anybody who knows me knows where my, you know, where what my political leanings are. So, you know, and what they aren't more specifically. So I think, uh, you know, if I get a little carried away here, uh, I, I apologize, but I also don't. So there, there you go. This this is a safe space. <laughs> yes, we're all we're all in our safe space here. We're not in a bunker, unlike uh, some other nope. American presidents. <laughs> <laughs> Shout across the bow there. I did, you know, you see a lot of talk on, at least I do, on social media about how Frank would have viewed the Trump administration, the current presidential administration. Obviously, we can't say either way because Frank is no longer with us. But I think if you go back and look at his music and his interviews and such like, you get a pretty good idea for what he might have thought of this uh, administration. But one bit of insight that I can offer comes to us from Gail Zappa, who I was talking to in um, 2013, I believe it was. This was not long after the whole birtherism thing where Donald Trump said that Obama had come from Kenya and, you know, he'd forged his birth certificate, some nonsense like that. And um, we were going over a list of 
you know, what what we might be up against come 2016. And of course, Gail passed away before that. But and when I got to uh, Donald Trump, I asked her specifically how Frank would have viewed birtherism, you know, and Trump in general. And we do have a, there is a quote that uh, we have of Frank talking about Donald Trump from High Times magazine, December of 1989. Uh, the interviewer asks, how have you managed to keep your integrity while becoming a successful businessman? Frank replies, it's really easy. All you have to do is decide you don't want to be one of those guys. It, you don't make as much money, but you can certainly live well enough. High Times interviewer says, it's a bizarre thing. You ask kids what they want to be when they grow up or what they want to do, and their answer is, I want to make money. In a survey among high school students, more kids said Donald Trump was their hero than anyone anybody else. Pardon me. And Frank replied, yeah, but on the other hand, let's deal with it as a fact of life in America. I think that's a very good indicator of the failure of U.S. education. Now, if you add those two facts together, Donald Trump is the idol of American teens and that teens can't read, write, or do arithmetic. What do we have? High Times interviewer says, what? Frank says, a failure to communicate. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That gives you some idea. Yeah. But but Gail had, uh, when we were talking about birtherism, Gail said, and I quote, because still have the email, she said, Donald Trump is a liar and Frank hated liars. So there you go. And she should know, folks. Yeah. <laughs> so... I I don't know that he would have been very pleased with uh, Hillary Clinton either. We can only speculate if Frank would have been a Bernie bro. You know, that's a good that's a good question. I you know, I've thought about that. Um, Bernie being more of a socialist would make it difficult for Frank. Right. Because, you know, Frank was all about getting his yo. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you know, although Frank was very generous in a lot of ways, he was not shy about you know, getting everything that was owed to him with perfectly reasonable point of view. One of the things that Amit said to me on this show was that if Frank were alive now, he could easily picture him being a panelist on Bill Maher's show. Mm -hmm. And that just broke my heart because I would so love to see that. It's it's just one of those things like where we feel like we need him now more than ever. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's so many late night shows who are to various degrees of success turning to a political format, mm-hmm. which is also interesting because how the networks are funded. <laughs> yeah. Like you're wondering how far they can go. Yeah. But uh, when's the book going to come out? That's the compilation of like all the all the political ideas by Frank compiled into one handy handbook that we could. Well, there's an idea, to. Ed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I really, really appreciate you guys talking about this stuff. And Scott, when you suggested it, I, I thought this was a fantastic idea mm-hmm. just because it, it's always stuck with me for the past like 35, 40 years of watching, seeing Zappa in interviews mm-hmm. talk about what's unfolding right now. Yep. And... Zappa was the music of my youth and all through where I am today. And I think he was a good influence on me because uh, I, me the other jobs I work on are um, 
very progressive political uh, podcasts, mm-hmm. and I'm glad to have that influence, and I'm glad I got into uh, Frank rather than Ted Nugent. <laughs> I saw him live once. It was oh, oh my god! But yeah, I really, I, I so appreciate having you guys. It's a big topic, and I know this will no doubt be one of our more controversial episodes. But what's Frank without the controversy? Though? Exactly. That's I, the beautiful thing about the momentum that's happening now. Is like we are we are deviating from the norm. So yes, it makes me think progress is possible. It, yeah. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give that one a round of applause. That's fantastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this was uh, one of I. This is one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done. So thank you very much, gentlemen. I really appreciate. Oh, thank it. you, thank Scott. You. And you and folks, you can send your hate mail too. <laughs> <laughs> we don't care, but uh, you know we're we're okay. <coughs> ZappaCast, the official Frank Zappa podcast, is made in cooperation with the Zappa Trust. For everything Frank Zappa, including this show, visit Zappa.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at at Zappa. ZappaCast was created by and it's hosted by Scott Parker. Our producer is Phil Circus. Special thanks to everyone at the Zappa Trust and Zappa.com. This podcast and all the musical selections contained therein are copyrighted worldwide by the Zappa Trust. All rights reserved. And until next time. Good night, boys and girls. During the news conference, Ford said he does not believe President Nixon will be impeached by the House of Representatives. Ford said that in the past several weeks, excuse me, I was burping, in the past (laughs) several weeks he has detected what he called a movement in the House more favorable to the President. Ford said that the odds that Nixon will be impeached are less today than they were a month or two ago. There are reports from Key Biscayne that Nixon aides are so pleased with the way the Mideast, the Mideast, and the Midest, and the Modesto, and Moscow trips took the headlines away from Watergate that two more overseas cover-ups are being considered. The president reportedly is considering another cover-up trip to Japan next month and another cover-up trip to Europe this fall, just as the impeachment inquiry is coming to a, and we're quoting now, a head.